Well, welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. This is part two of a discussion that we started last week with Christian astronomer Hugh Ross talking about his new book, Always Be Ready, A Call to Adventurous Faith. Now, Hugh is a founder and president of Reasons to Believe, a science apologetics organization, written lots of books on scientific evidence for the existence of God. And now he's come out with a new book that talks about more of his personal stories, his upbringing as a child, and how he became ready to present the case, to, to go out and to uh, share the good news, the hope that he has with gentleness and respect, and then tells lots of stories on how he did that. It's very very encouraging book. And so, Hugh, thanks for uh, this second part of our discussion. Oh, you're very welcome. So the majority of your book, I would say, is a lot of stories that, again, are just inspiring. It reminds me of when I was a missionary reading missionary biographies and just hearing, oh, man, look at what these people did. Maybe if I'm a missionary long enough, I could do maybe some of the things they did. That's the same way I felt now as a young apologist and, and reading this going, oh, my goodness, if, if I could get into these type of conversations, that would be incredible. So I'm just curious, out of all the conversations you shared, are there a couple that stand out to you as just being really cool, really unique conversations that you've had over the years that you mentioned in the book? Well, you know, I am a scientist and I'm also a pastor. And what I tell in the book is you know, I have to fly on airplanes a lot and uh how frequently I'm sitting beside either a scientist or a pastor. And let's face it, though, they make up a very tiny percentage of the population. Yeah. Uh, but that's about 50 percent of all the conversations I have on airplanes. And I also tell a story of a friend of mine who's uh, an ex-Mormon. And, uh, you know, he flies a lot, too. And how often it is he finds himself sitting beside a Mormon. Hmm. So that's kind of the evidence I bring to bear that if you prepare good reasons and prepare them with Christian demeanor, to deliver them with Christian demeanor, God will use your background, your experience, your reasons to bring you in touch with people who are going to respond. So I don't think it's an accident that I happen to be sitting beside scientists and pastors and theologians as often as I do. Yeah. But one story I tell is uh, how uh, I was in an airport. The plane got delayed for an hour and a half. And uh, they finally called my name. And I thought, boy, I'm going to get bumped on the plane. And they said, look, uh, uh, there's a mother with her kids. Uh, they need to sit together. Are you OK if we change your seat? I said, yeah, I'm by myself. You can put me anywhere you want in the plane. So she handed me a new ticket. And it was a first class seat. That's wonderful. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> can't complain about class. that. So here I am sitting in a first class seat. And then this gentleman sits beside me and uh, he introduces himself and says, you know, I never fly first class, uh, but Microsoft is having me come up and consult. And they insisted that they fly me first class. And uh, then he introduced himself and said, uh, you know, I'm a quantum physicist from Germany and was really unusual. He immediately said he was an atheist and a skeptic. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's really rare when people introduce themselves right off the bat like that. Yeah. In terms of a belief system. And he said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm an astrophysicist. I'm not from Germany. I'm from Canada. I'm not an atheist and a skeptic. I'm a Christian. He <laughs> said, this is going to be a really interesting flight. Can I ask you some questions? I wish I was sitting behind you guys. <laughs> well, there's actually a couple sitting behind us that listened into the entire conversation. As would I. <laughs> uh, who, are not, who weren't scientists. But what happened is he said, I've got eight major objections to the Christian faith. And, you know, the first one is, well, if there is a God, why all these useless galaxies and stars? I told them why there had to be exactly that number of stars and galaxies. 
to get one planet like Earth. He asked me seven other questions. And finally, he said, how come you have such well-prepared answers to these eight questions I've asked you? And so, first of all, you're not the first person that's asked me these eight questions. And second of all, those are eight chapters in a book I've written, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. Talking about being prepared. And he said, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and I said, well, I've actually got that book in my briefcase. I pulled it out. He opened it up and says, those are the titles of the first eight chapters of your book. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he was stunned. And then he said, well, you know, uh, he was I could tell he wanted the book. So I offered to give it to him. And then he said, uh, you know, I'm German. You guys ever do anything in German? I said, well, we have a DVD that we have in 11 different languages. And that's the last thing I got my briefcase. So I handed him a copy of our Journey Toward Creation DVD, uh, where one of the languages uh, was in German. He walked with me to baggage claim. And he said, I've just calculated the probability that a German atheist quantum physicist would be sitting in first class beside a Canadian uh, Christian astrophysicist. And we would have this conversation. He says, it's got to be less than one chance in two billion. <laughs> I know what happened today was not an accident. That's a remarkable statement. Absolutely. For someone like him to make. Now, did you happen to keep in contact with him at all? I've never heard from him. No. But that's a point I make in the book, that as a Christian, don't expect to be able to see the fruit of all the seeds that you planted. And uh, having been in this uh, ministry for as many decades as I have, uh, my most common uh, response to people telling me what happened is they'll say, Hugh, I heard you speak 26 years ago uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, that was the night I gave my life to Christ. Notice it took 26 years for them to tell me. Wow. And that's pretty typical. And so I tell people, hey, if you get started on this, don't get discouraged if you don't see the fruit of your ministry for a decade or two. Yeah. Uh, but once you, if you do this long enough, then you'll see it. So it's such, for example, now every time I speak, at least one person comes up to me and tells me how a DVD or a book that I was responsible for uh, was a key factor in their becoming a Christian. So I see it all the time now, but I can tell you for the first five years, I was hardly seeing it at all. And that has to be so encouraging to, to hear those stories of just how your work has just touched many people's lives. And, and how long has Reasons to Believe been around? How long have you been leading it? Uh, 33 years. Okay. You know, I'm looking at you, I can tell you you're quite young. So my encouragement to you is, hey, keep it up. And uh, you're going to be hearing these stories all the time as well. Well, I'm just I'm just 30 years behind. I've been doing my ministry about three, so okay. <laughs> I'm following. Uh, just three it will happen to you too. <laughs> Absolutely, it's it's so encouraging. Uh, so I, I'm torn right now because I want to get to the listener questions who sent in have some questions for you, but I just there's so many awesome stories, and so maybe we'll jump to listener questions, and then if we have time at the end, we'll go back to some of the stories. But uh, maybe that's just an encouragement to those who uh, want to get the book. Uh, go out and get it. There's some really cool stories, and just really quick, uh, I think of also the one where uh, the first time you decided to share your faith with your friend in college. Right. In the physics department. You went up to him and said, hey, I want to talk to you. And he goes, no, I want to talk to you first. I have a question. And he asked you a question. What was that question? Well, he said, I know you want to talk, Hugh, but please, I need to talk. Uh, I've been going through some real struggles in my life. I need to talk to somebody about God. Do you know anybody on this campus who knows anything <laughs> about God? And that led to a four-hour conversation we had that day. 
Yeah, that's so cool. You go to him to talk to him about God, and then there, there's the next thing. Right. Um, now, a quick question uh, before we jump to listener questions. Well, this is a listener question. Uh, one uh, listener emailed in and said, "You in your book, you talk about doing door-to-door evangelism and these co- conversational sheets you had and also uh, handouts from things that you'd written. Do you still have PDFs of those that people could get to use uh, in their evangelistic efforts? Well, we don't have PDFs, but uh, we do have... Uh photocopied sheets that people can get. Okay. Uh, I've been looking for a volunteer to put all that stuff into PDFs. Okay. uh, Yeah, that was several decades ago before uh, the kind of technology we have today exists. So uh, we literally were were mimeographing all that stuff. Okay. All right. So jumping into some questions that I got from people, and I think just like your book mentions, everywhere you go, in fact, even one time you said you you woke up from surgery and the nurses and doctors were waiting to ask you questions because uh, they found out that it was you that was in surgery. Uh, a lot of people also wrote into me with questions for you. Uh, so the first one is a little bit of a, a challenge in the sense that uh, you mentioned in your book that you spent 18 months studying scripture and you said uh, that you found dozens of passages where the Bible accurately predicted future scientific discoveries, future historical events, and even thousands of years ahead of their time. And so uh, Gabriel wrote in on Facebook and he said, how do you choose which passages are speaking in a scientifically accurate way and which passages are making a different sort of point? That's and so a for good the example. Question. Yeah. So for the example, uh, I pulled up three uh, examples. I Googled, uh, you know, anti-scientific claims in the Bible or something. And there's an example of in Leviticus 11, it says that a bat is a bird. It says these are the birds and it lists a bat. And so we would know that bats aren't birds. Uh, Matthew 13, it talks about the mustard seed being the smallest, where we know that that's not actually true. And then finally, Genesis 1, it talks about the moon being a lesser light, whereas we know now that the moon is not actually a light. It's just reflecting something. And so how, what kind of hermeneutic do you use to know, like, this is a scientifically accurate claim versus this is, no, it's making a different point. How do you pick and choose those without kind of just being uh, biased or selective? And I just like sure. this because it proves my point. Well, those, those are good points. And I think, number one, we need to realize the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And so there's translation issues we need to take into account. And also there's 66 books in the Bible it's not one book. And so if you see a text uh, that looks like it's not in line with uh, current science, well, let's look at the other 65 books um, and let's integrate what it's got to say. And you'll like the one about the mustard seed. Well, I mean, if you read it in the original Greek, uh, the content, in fact, you'll see this in some of the trans- English translations. It'll say the smallest of all your seeds, a reference to the smallest of all the agricultural seeds that were in use in Palestine at that time. And in that context, the mustard seed indeed is the smallest of all seeds. So again, examining the context to make sure you understand uh, what's taking place there. Uh, you know, when it talks about the moon being the lesser light, well, one of the things I noticed when I first picked up Genesis is that uh, it follows the scientific method. And step one of the scientific method is don't interpret until you establish the frame of reference. Well, Genesis 1-2 puts the frame of reference for the six creation days on the surface of the Earth's waters. And so from that perspective of an observer on the surface of the Earth's waters, looking up at the sky, what is the brightest light and what is the lesser light? And so the text is not saying that this uh, moon uh, gives forth its own light, uh, but rather that from the human perspective, 
it appears to be not as bright as the sun, but brighter than the stars. And in that sense, uh, no problem. And I saw that right away at age 17 because I realized, okay, here's the frame of reference. And from that frame of reference, also when it talks about, you know, let there be light, I noticed it didn't say that God created the light in Genesis 1-3. It says, let the light be. The light was created in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, but didn't appear on the surface of the earth until uh, creation day one. And that's where the cross-reference in Job 38 helps. Because Job 38, in reference to creation day one, says that God had blanketed the oceans of the earth with clouds that kept those oceans dark. And so there it's explicit as to why it was dark on the surface of the waters. It was dark because the primordial clouds of the earth were opaque to light. Light couldn't penetrate, just like light can't penetrate the clouds on Venus today. But God transformed the atmosphere. So it let light through uh, on day four. It transformed the atmosphere again, where it became transparent, where for the first time observers on the surface of the earth could actually see the objects in the sky that were responsible for the light. Not until creation day four did the moon become visible to observers on the surface of the earth, but the moon would have predated creation day one. So in short, I guess uh, what you're saying is uh, you're not just picking and choosing and taking the scientifically accurate verses and ignoring ones that are not accurate. But when you understand the context of the ones that appear to be inaccurate, you understand that's not actually making a false statement when you understand the context. That and integrating with the other 65 books of the Bible. Okay. Before you make a, a decision on what the text is saying, you really want to look at it in the context of everything else that's in okay. the Bible. Now, how would you respond? Because I often hear people say, well, Genesis chapter one, it's not a scientific account and it's not meant to be. It's a story of God's creation order. Like, how would you respond to saying that it's not a scientific account of creation? Well, if you can see that it's an account of creation order, that automatically makes it a scientific uh, uh, chronologue. And uh, so that's really the issue. You know, people who tell me that it's not a science text are basically saying there's no chronology there. God's just raising topics. But as I look at Genesis 1, it seems to me that the author is going overboard to tell you that this is an explicit sequence of physical events in the history of Earth and the history of life. And in that sense, it is scientific. Now, I okay. think it's going too far to say that Genesis 1 speaks about particle physics. Yeah. I don't see any particle physics in the text, but I certainly see a chronology of different life forms appearing at different times. Okay. Now, one interesting or the, the kind of the aspect of reasons to believe is that you at reasons to believe hold to progressive creation or an old earth theory, which is often right. contrary to many Christians uh, holding to a younger six day, uh, 24 hour creation model. So Claudia writes in on, on Facebook and said, why is it important for Christians or even an apologist to take a position when it comes to old earth, new earth debate? Or should we just stay neutral? Well, it isn't a factor for salvation. And so in terms of what would I fellowship with young earth creations? Definitely. This is not a salvation issue. Notice that the age of the earth doesn't show up in any of the creeds of the church. So this is not an issue to divide over. However, it is important for evangelism. I mean, to give an example, uh, circumcision is not a significant issue for salvation. You can be circumcised in a Christian and uncircumcised in a Christian. What you see in Acts 15 is a circumcision 
became a critical issue that divided the church in a very damaging way and was preventing Gentiles from becoming Christians, especially Gentile men. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, likewise today, the age of the earth and the age of the universe has become deeply divisive within the church and is preventing the reaching of what I would call a critical mission field, non-Christians in STEM careers or working with people in STEM careers. And so just like circumcision is a needless barrier to the Christian faith, today, the age of the earth and the age of the universe has become an unnecessary barrier uh, to salvation. So I would tell my young earth friends, you can believe what you want, but please don't make this a barrier. Don't make this a critical doctrine that you insist non-Christians have to believe on. And listen to your non-Christian friends when they say there's overwhelming scientific evidence refuting their belief system. No need to get uh, disturbed by that. It's not a salvation issue. Yeah. And how often do you have friendly dialogue between uh, Young Earth uh, organizations like Answers in Genesis or Institute of Creation Research? Uh, not very often, because they see this as a salvation issue. Okay. Even though they write that they don't, they'll say things, well, we don't think this is critical for someone to become a Christian, but we do believe it undermines the doctrine of, uh, um, what is it, the, the trying to think, Sorry. Uh, the doctrine of Scripture, and inerrancy of Scripture. Well, no, they won't say that, but they'll say it undermines the atonement doctrine. Okay. And I would argue the atonement doctrine is a critical Christian doctrine. So when you say, I don't believe in the atonement, or I undermine the doctrine of the atonement, that's equivalent to saying I really don't belong in the church. Hmm. And so uh, what I've discovered is once young earth creationists realize that this issue is not a critical doctrinal issue, it gets quickly resolved. But when they believe that uh, this is critical for salvation or biblical inerrancy, then they just tend to put their feet in the sand and say, we don't care what the evidence is. But my advice is to people who are engaging young earth creationists, engage them with the biblical evidence. Hmm. Most young earth creationists have no idea that the Bible overwhelmingly sustains an old earth interpretation. And, you know, to use answers in Genesis, there are 65 other books. Not all the answers are in Genesis. If you integrate all 66 books and insist on biblical consistency and biblical inerrancy and biblical authority, I think you make an overwhelming biblical case that these creation days must be long periods of time. In fact, I argue if all you look at is Genesis 1 and 2, it seems quite clear these days have to be longer than 24 hours. After all, there's no closure on day seven. And three yeah. texts outside of Genesis tell us we're still in the seventh day. Hmm. So Kristen wrote in on Facebook a, a question similar to that of, of oh, where do you place the dinosaurs? Uh, and then what about carbon dating? Because that seems, you know, I think young earthers often talk about, well, carbon dating is not accurate. Uh, how can, what's a response to the, you know, how we do carbon dating and, and with dinosaurs and knowing the age? Well, with dinosaurs, I think, fit in on creation day five. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about dinosaurs for good reason. Uh, not until 200 years ago do we even know about them. And the Bible is a book for all generations. So it uses vocabulary that communicates to all generations. But where they fit in the chronology is between God creating the first animals at the beginning of creation day five and God creating birds and mammals 
at the end of creation day five. So between those two events, we got the dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs are important and that they contribute significantly to the biodeposits that we need to sustain our global uh, high-tech civilization. Now, as far as carbon dating goes, uh, as with any radiometric tool, you have to use it where it's applicable. All radiometric dating tools uh, are only reliable within a factor of six of their half-life. So uh, given that carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,715 years, uh, you can divide that by six, which means anything younger than about a 1,000 years, you're not going to get a reliable carbon-14 date. And anything older than about 40,000 years, you're not going to get a reliable carbon-14 date. And moreover, you're dating how long something has been dead. Carbon-14 is useless for dating something that was never alive. Hmm. And so if you misapply the method, uh, you will get a wrong date. But what young Earth creationist leaders say is, we know that the Earth and the universe can't be billions of years old because even the oldest material gives us a carbon-14 date of 58,000 years. But that 58,000-year date, number one, it's outside the reliable range of carbon-14. And number two, that's the expected background signal because there's uranium and thorium in the crust of the Earth. And there's nitrogen in the crust of the Earth. And so as uranium and thorium decay, it will cause some of that nitrogen to become carbon-14. And so you're going to get a background signal no matter how old a substance is, because of the fact that everything contains uranium and uh, nitrogen. So, uh, you know, we typically wow. talk about how cosmic rays transform nitrogen into carbon-14, uh, but the decay of uranium and thorium, likewise, it will do that. Okay. Now, Jimmy texted in a question. This one has a little short response, but he said, uh, what is your go-to response on how to answer the question? So how do you know Christianity is true? Do you have a short 30-second, one-minute? Yeah, I got a real answer? short answer. It's predictive power. Okay. The fact that it accurately predicts, predicts without any error future scientific discoveries, future historical events, uh, tells me this book must be inspired by one that transcends space-time, matter, and energy. In fact, you'll see a resource at reasons.org where I did a two-hour debate with a religion editor of Skeptics magazine on whether or not the Bible's got predictive power. And so, uh, yeah, you can download that audio uh, thing. All right, there you go. There's a great short answer. Now, Steve wrote in on Facebook, and he said, So according to most Christian apologists, science and the Bible are seeming to align more and more as science discovers things that are indicate an intelligent designer. But most scientists seem to still discount the connection. Are they like many Christians that already have a position and then make the Bible fit their position? Only their position is anti-God, and therefore their science is flawed from the get-go, and they really aren't seeking the truth. So if science is pointing towards God, why do scientists still go the opposite direction? Well, there are scientists who are committed to their atheistic worldview perspective, no matter what the evidence. I mean, I publicly debated Peter Atkins a couple of months ago when I was in Britain, and the debate ended with him saying, I don't care what science discovers, I'm not going to change my beliefs. But most scientists are not like Peter Atkins. They will respond to evidence. But also keep in mind, most research scientists 
have been exposed to really bad Christian science apologetics. Hmm. And so we need to get them past their misconceptions. I mean, a common one, for example, is a lot of scientists think, well, if you take the Bible seriously, you have to believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old. Or I run with a lot of them and say, well, I heard that Genesis teaches that the world is flat. They've never read Genesis, but that's just yeah. what they've heard. And so we need to first get them past their misconceptions. And my goal is to actually get them reading the text for themselves. So I like to kind of preek their uh, uh, curiosity by saying, do you know that the Bible says this and this? And I say, well, if it says that, i got to check it out. Interesting. We have about five minutes left, and so we're going to try to get uh, some of these. Or actually, no, only four minutes. Uh, get a couple more in. Uh, Jeremiah wrote in on Facebook as well and said, It is generally agreed that if young Earth creation timeline is accurate, then the breakdown of radioactive isotopes must have been drastically increased at some point in the past. Dr. Ross generally cites a passage in Job saying that the constants are unchanging. But aside from that, what is the scientific evidence either for or against the claim? Does the famous E equals MC squared equation play a role in that in the same way that it would with the speed of light well first of all is jeremiah 33 that talks about how the laws of physics don't change and there's several other bible texts that say that but he is right all young earth models critically depend on the laws of physics changing by factors of millions or billions at the fall of adam or the flood uh, or both but in science we have direct evidence that that's not correct uh, and that's because in astronomy, we're accessing the past. If I look at the Andromeda galaxy with my telescope tonight, I'm seeing it as it was two and a half million years ago, because that's how long it took the velocity of light uh, to reach me. And when I look at the spectra of the Andromeda galaxy, it tells me what the laws of physics were two and a half million years ago. And so we can look at stars that are, say, uh, 100 light years away, or a thousand light years away, or galaxies that are millions or billions of light years away. And in all cases, we can measure the laws of physics, and they measure to be exactly what we measure in the laboratory here on Earth today. So scientifically, we know that the laws of physics haven't changed, and then we know it too because of the anthropic principle. If you change the laws of physics at any point in the past, it eliminates the possibility of life existing today. So the fact that you and I clearly are alive is evidence that the laws of physics have not changed. Hmm. I mean, if E equals MC squared uh, was altered by a factor of a million at the time of Adam, which young Earth models uh, need, then that means that the sun uh, would be a trillion times hotter. If it's a trillion times hotter, that would incinerate the Earth, and clearly that didn't happen. Interesting. Now, I asked you for a short answer to why you think Christianity is true. What would be your short answer to why you think the universe is old? The short answer is that uh, we can actually observe the universe. Uh, as I said, astronomy, we have no ability to observe the present, but we've got direct access to the past. And the direct access uh, tells us that indeed the universe is 13, uh, no, pardon me, yeah, 13.79 billion years old. Okay. Now, I, I got an objection this summer uh, from a student that said, uh, no, the universe has to be young because the sun's uh, luminosity is increasing, and if it were old, it would have gotten too hot and we'd all burn up. Um, and you mentioned the sun's luminosity increasing in your book. How would you respond to that? Well, the sun's luminosity is increasing, but it increases extremely slowly. Uh, so, yeah, about 30 million years from now, the sun's luminosity will be too bright uh, for humans to exist here on planet Earth. 
but in my theology, Jesus Christ redeems us from our evil long before the sun gets too bright for us to exist here. Okay. Well, we're out of time. There's one last question we won't be able to get to, but Kent, I just want to tell you, uh, we did a, I did an episode with Krista Bontrager, also from Reasons to Believe, on uh, Death Before the Fall and Adam and Eve, and so you can go check out that episode. Well, to get one that thing answer. I'd like to say oh. is that uh, if you want a free chapter from uh, Always Be Ready, we're giving away Chapter 10 by going to reasons.org slash Ross. All right, reasons.org slash Ross. And is that where they find all the information for what you're doing and reasons to believe and your scholars at work? Yeah, that'll be a window into all kinds of free resources. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I so much appreciate the work of Reasons to Believe. I've gone through the Reasons Institute and taken your courses and greatly benefited from those. And so, Hugh, thank you so much for taking this time. It was an honor. Oh, you're very welcome. That wraps up my interviews with Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe on his new book, Always Be Ready, A Call to Adventurous Faith. He just gave some great resources. I encourage you to go check that out on awesome stuff when it comes to science and apologetics. Also, be sure to follow on social media because my next scheduled interview is October 1st with Dr. Craig Hazen on his new book, Fearless Prayer. And so you can send in your questions on apologetics and prayer for him on social media at RyanPolly3 for Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Contact at coffeehousequestions.com for email and text them in at 714-989-6927. Also, I want to thank you guys so much who have left comments and ratings on the show on iTunes. Jimmy Davis specifically left that comment. Thank you. That means so, so much when you guys do that and share it with your friends. So sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly. I'm my